give me any sermon notes. Um, I guess I should have, uh, should have asked for some, huh? But uh, here we are in Genesis chapter 19. And uh, this is not the type of passage that I think many Christians <laughs> look forward to. Maybe Joey, uh, maybe Nathaniel. Uh, I know he wrote a paper on it. He's been excited um, about this passage. Uh, but I think overwhelmingly, it's a passage that is hard, and especially one that non-Christians look at, and they just scoff at our religion, and they scoff at, this, you know, this is our holy book, and they read stories like this and think, what in the world? How, how inspiring your religion must be. Um, rape, homosexuality, incest, and fiery rain, Right? This is the content of Genesis 19. And I'm thankful for how Joey began his sermon last Sunday because he, he did say the Old Testament has to be read under a certain light and in a certain manner. It's part of God's revealed history. And it's to be read in light of the New Testament. It, it, is, it is historical. And it contains awful stories of sin and damnation. And if we go to the Bible expecting like the golden rule and the ten ways to better your marriage, right? we're going to be really disappointed because that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of records of God's history inspired by God, written through men. We don't take our agenda to the text. We don't put our expectations on God's word, what it should or shouldn't say. This is historical narrative. We don't pick and choose or skip passages. We learn from history. And even more than just generic history, we learn from God's inspired word in its history. This is amazing what we have in front of us. And here's where we are in this inspired history. Abram has become Abraham. Sarai has become Sarah, the father of a multitude, the princess of royalty, right? God gave them the lineage or the, the covenant of circumcision setting apart Abraham's household as a people for himself. And yet Sarah is found still laughing at God in chapter 18 when the angels come and tell them about Isaac who's coming. That was their main objective in that appointment. But they have another appointment now to keep in Genesis 19. And they told Abraham that they're, they're going to Sodom. Abraham realizes that and walks with them part of the way there. And it's during this walk, it seems like, that God reveals the coming judgment on Sodom. And Abraham begins to plead with the Lord, as Joey preached last Sunday. If 50 are found, will you spare the city? Down to 10. If 10 are found, will you spare the city? Will you not sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And the Lord affirms to Abraham that he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And who is it that Abraham has on his mind? Well, of course, it's Lot. We remember from the earlier chapters, right? Lot was Abraham's brother's son, which makes him a nephew, right? Haran, his father, died, and they probably developed this father-son relationship. He, he seemed to come into his camp and be treated well. But they had separated for some time now when Lot chose to go down and be in Sodom because they couldn't share their possessions very well. Uh, so Lot, desiring more, went to the big city down in the valley, and you'll notice immediately after this happened, who did Abraham tell God was his heir? Some dude named Eliezer, right? 
the most appropriate heir for Abraham, even if he was going to contrive of one, would have been Lot. But this shows that their, their relationship is strained now, right? They've separated. But still, Lot is on Abraham's mind as he knows the Lord is about to destroy the city. So the angels make their way to what Paul Bunyan would call Vanity Fair, if you've read The Pilgrim's Progress. And we see four commands that apply to us today from this text. The first is, do not act so wickedly. Do not act so wickedly. Let me go over the context with you again. Verses 1 through 3, we see the angels come to Sodom just as they did to uh, the Oaks of Mamre where they met Abraham. And we see almost a a shot-for-shot remake uh, of, of Lot trying to be a servant towards these strangers just as Abraham was trying to be a servant, right? The angels approach the city gates. Lot is there at the city gates. Maybe he was a watchman of some kind or some sort of city official. But he's there at the gates. He pleads with them, come and be guests in my house. And they say, no, no, we'll just spend the night outside, right? It'll be fine. And uh, Lot's not having any of it. No, you guys will spend the night under my roof. So they enter his house. They get their feet washed. And they have a feast of unleavened bread. Very similar to the story of Abraham we just read. But the angels came for one reason, which was to destroy the city. But even if there were ten righteous found, they would relent. They have not found ten righteous in the city. But maybe one exceeds in righteousness more than the rest. Lot's hospitality stands out here among the men of Sodom. Showing that he is truly part of Abraham's household. Where did he learn this generosity from? And remember, God made a promise, the very first promise he made to Abraham. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless you and your household. Lot is still part of Abraham's household. God made this promise. He was going to keep this promise. It transcends even to Lot. And so we ask, will the Lord spare Lot, the prodigal who's left and gone from Abraham's household? Will the Lord sweep him away with the wicked? Will God keep his promises? And we see things take a turn for the worse as they're having this meal. Verses 4 through 11 turn, and now it becomes clear why Lot insisted they stay under his roof because Sodom is not a safe place. Before they even went to bed, before the sun went down, the men of Sodom, young and old, all the men of all the whole city are surrounding the house, banging on the door. Who are those men with you? Bring them out. And evidently Sodom doesn't get a lot of visitors. And when you come to town, they know it. The word for know, as they say, we want to know these men, is yada, which if you took Hebrew, uh, which, which I did, you had to remind yourself like Yoda, right, from Star Wars to, to remember the word for no. Um, uh, but it also has a sexual connotation to it sometimes in the same way that Adam knew his wife Eve. And so these men of Sodom wanted to take these strangers and do wicked Obscene sexual acts with them. Lot goes outside 
to confront them. He says, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And at first, we sort of see Lot like a mediator, like Abraham was, right? You know, pleading before the Lord and and stepping before his guests, you know, putting himself vulnerable before the mob, saying, don't do this awful thing. But then we see he calls them brothers. That's not cool. He sees himself as a sodomite. My brothers. He's okay being in their same category. And then he does something that's hard for any of us to stomach. He offers up his virgin daughters to do whatever you want. Just don't touch these men. And it doesn't take a theologian to to know that that's not okay. That is a cowardly defense move. Thankfully for our stomachs, they refuse this gift because they are offended by Lot. Who do you think you are, sojourner? You're not even from here. Now you come to our town and you act like a judge? You call us wicked? We will do worse to you than we ever would have done to your guests. The text says they pressed hard against the man. They cornered him against the door. A mob that wants to molest and kill Lot. Before Lot is utterly destroyed, although we don't know what happened in that moment, he was rescued by the strangers, his visitors, that he was sworn to protect. They protected him. The angels reached out, brought him in, slammed the door back. And then they struck the whole town with blindness, which I do believe is part of God's cursing. You curse one of mine, I curse you. The whole town struck with blindness. And there are awful moans barely stopped as they groped tirelessly toward the front door. This is one of the most horrid scenes in the whole Bible. We read this and we we get repulsed pretty quickly because we see the injustice and we can't help but side with Lot, right? We want him out. We want him to be safe. We we, we get caught up in the heroism of, of the thing and what's going on here. But this text is given to us to show us the depravity of man. And not like them but like you and me. Do you know what your heart is capable of? Do you know the evil of our hearts and how far it will unravel if we let it? The weightiest words in this whole passage of Scripture that we should feel to the core of our being is, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Jesus uses this text to compare Galilee and all the men of his day, which historically, I don't know if you, I just learned this recently, was the most peaceful year in history. The year of the least amount of violence that ever happened on the earth was the year that Jesus walked the earth. Or the time that Jesus walked the earth, the generation that Jesus walked the earth. 
And here's what he says about the people in his life, Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. We read Sodom and we think, oh, there's been nobody as bad as these people. Jesus says they're right in front of me. They're right in front of us. Joey loves to remind us that we're covered in flesh. These flesh-covered bodies, right? We have the same bodies the Sodomites had. And if we fully give way to the cravings of our flesh, we become like the men of Sodom. Nobody is exempt from this. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. Isn't it interesting that all the old and the young came participate in this act I don't care what you think about your libido what you think you could never imagine yourself doing you're capable of more evil than you think you think Ravi Zacharias wanted his legacy to go down as a sodomite our hearts are utterly wicked Utterly wicked. Who can know it? <clears throat> Mariana and I are, <clears throat> we try to read at night together. And we're reading a book right now that I really like. I don't know if she likes it as much as I do. <laughs> but it's called uh, Pastor's Sketches. <clears throat> a pastor from the 1800s named Ichabod Spencer. Um, he has all these conversations with unbelievers and with church members. And he just wrote them down. And uh, he tells this story that we just read this week about um, him talking to people after service and he would, you know, get quick to the, to the matter at hand. He wouldn't beat around with, you know, gen- general discussion, how you doing stuff. He always cut straight to the soul and he wanted to, to see the spiritual matter in the person's life and confront it. And so there was a, a, a new young person in his church and he would give everybody, you know, just a couple minutes. He wouldn't linger long with people. But uh, he approached this young man. And he said, Sir, what do you think of the state of your soul? And the young man said, Utterly depraved, sir. And the man, or the pastor responded, It is more depraved than you know. And then he walked away. <laughs> I don't have near as much guts as this guy, right? The guy, the young man got saved, regenerated two weeks later. He could not stop dwelling on the depravity of his heart. More than you know, more than you know, more than you know. Those words rang in his mind until he finally came to Christ. The message of the Bible has shown us time and time again that there is no salvation for us until we understand what we need saving from. Until we understand our depravity. Oh, that someone had warned Ravi, do not act so wickedly. Oh, that someone would command you and I weekly, day in and day out, do not act so wickedly. Your heart will deceive you. Don't act so wickedly. 
Until we become face to face with our depravity, we will never be able to master the flesh by the power of the Spirit. We are not stronger than the Sodomites. Amen? Amen. Lot at first appears to be on the right side, right? We, we kind of get this righteous perspective. This is his generosity and his hospitality. But he calls them brothers. And he embraced this fleshly living more than he perhaps realized. That leads us to our second command. Don't look back. Don't look back. Look at verse, verse 12 for a minute. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, uh, daughters, sons? Anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. We're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters, who are here, lest you be swept away, the punishment of the city. But then he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And the angels finally reveal their true mission to Lot, right? We came here to destroy this place. Gather your family, anybody you love. You need to tell them what's about to happen. The Lord is about to unleash hell and wrath upon this city. And here's when we pause and we think for a moment about a time before Abraham. When God once destroyed the entire earth. Why did he do that? Because of their increasing corruption upon the earth. Right? They were getting worse and worse and worse and more, more violent. And so God did that, but then He promised, giving them a sign in the, of the bow in the clouds, that He would never again destroy all life as He had done. But God never promised He would not destroy increasingly corrupt cities or even nations. This was a small scale picture of what happened in the days of Noah. Man was so wicked here that their judgment could not wait until the afterlife. This was God's will that they perish immediately. And we'll come back to that. But, but think about Lot and put yourself in his shoes. What would you do if you got this news? It's a lot to process, right? And this isn't just like, my house is on fire. What should I grab before I get out? You know? This is the whole city. It's going to be burnt up to ashes, gone. This is God's judgment coming. Everyone will die if you don't leave. So the angels encourage him. Talk to your family. You guys got to get out of here. So he goes to his sons-in-laws. They scoff at him, thinking he's joking or something. They scoff like Sarah inside the tent, doubting the Lord. And perhaps maybe in their scoffing, and they weren't even married to his daughters, right? Which shows you something else about the land of Sodom. Lot was persuaded to perhaps doubt the wrath of God, to presume mercy on the Lord, as Romans tells us not to do. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, Do you suppose a man 
You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so the sun goes down. And the morning dew comes up on Sodom for the last time. Only God knows how much sleep they got as they wailed in their blindness throughout the town and as Lot considered what he had just been told. Now, ironically, the angels are saying the same thing to Lot now that he said to his sons-in-law. Up! Get up! Wake up! Like he was just sleeping as he was maybe led astray um, by his sons-in-law. The angels say, you will be swept away. And, and we read those words in verse 16, and it seems like there must be a typo or something. It says, he lingered. He lingered. And the angels, because he was lingering, forcibly remove him. They grab him by the hand and his wife and his two daughters. They get them out of the city and they say, run as fast as you can. Get out of here. Run to the hills. Don't look back for even a moment. Leave. And they say they do this because of the mercy of God. But then Lot, again, the, the irony, he uses the same language Abraham uses. When he's pleading before the Lord, he says, I'm your servant. You know, I'm not, I'm not even supposed to talk to you, you know. But can I go to Zoar instead? Like, can I get some fries with that sandwich? You know, while I'm at it? Abraham intercedes to save an entire city. Lot intercedes to take a city for himself. But in Lot's apparent hardness of heart to ask for more, God's mercy still comes through. They grant him the favor. They go to Zoar instead of the hills. There's a play on words. Zoar means little. He thinks maybe, I don't know. The big takeaway here is that there is no lingering or looking back after you've come face to face with the judgment of God. This is not something to linger over. Here is a text that pleads with us to seriously work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And our world has somehow created two kinds of Christians. Have you heard of this? You've got the obedient Christian and you have the carnal Christian. Or maybe the moral Christian and the carnal Christian. The carnal Christian is living in ongoing, unrepentant sin. The good Christian... Loves Jesus and is following Him. But both of them still go to heaven and they both bypass the wrath of God. Now I do want to make something clear. I do believe that Christians do terribly stupid things sometimes. And we sin and even linger in sin sometimes. But whoever told you that this was normal needs to get out of the pulpit. They got no place preaching God's word. 
It is not normal for us to look at the all-consuming fire that is our God and then go on sinning deliberately and without repentance. The idea of a carnal Christian is anti-Bible. It makes no sense. Seeing the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin is like being hit by a Mack truck. And if you're not in the hospital, I don't think you got hit by a Mack truck. I don't think you've seen the wrath of God. I don't think you understand the depravity of your soul, right? So we must not look back. We must not look away. Ask yourself this. How much effort do you put in every week to making sure you're not going backwards in the Christian life? If you're doing nothing, you're going backwards. Because you're either going towards Christ or towards self. Right? There's no in between. The moment we are saved, the Spirit immediately begins to sanctify us. Justification through faith precedes sanctification, which means if there is no Christian growth, if there is no fruit in your life, how can you say you've been justified? Are you lingering? Wake up. Wake up. Don't be sluggish in the faith. Develop a fear of God before your eyes. There's two things I want you to do. The first one is to honestly and sincerely question your salvation. I don't tell you to do that a lot. That's not something I normally tell you to do, right? Not the preacher who's like, you're not saved, you're not saved, you're not saved, get down here. Not doing that. But I am saying... Some of y'all, and I think this text calls us to question our salvation. Are you lingering in sin? Have you truly confronted the wrath that you deserve for rebelling against a holy God? Take a hard look at your soul and see what's there. Search the scriptures. Reflect on your daily life. Does the fruit of your life look anything like what the New Testament prescribes for a Christian? You may not be saved. And your lingering may be a sign that you will indeed be swept away with the wicked. Not because God got it wrong, but because you are wicked. The second thing, if you find that you are not saved, repent and trust in Jesus for the atonement of your sins. And receive grace that is greater than any wicked thing you've ever done against a holy God. Receive the righteousness of Christ. Be clothed in it like white robes. Be washed in His blood. Be saved to sin no more in the age to come. Come to Christ. If you look there and you find that you are saved. Ask God to wake you up from your spiritual sleep. Don't linger. Ask Christ to give you victory over the pull of your flesh that you might not longer be a a slave to the passions and your desires any longer. And then ask a mature Christian to start discipling you today that you might learn how to live the Christian life. We must not look back. We must run without delay. So whether Lot knew it or not, at the end of the day, there's only one judge who matters. And it's the judge of all the earth. As the author of Hebrews says, what can man do to me? We fear 
the Lord. We must not doubt the Lord's judgments. Do not doubt His judgments. Look at verse 23. The sun arisen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Another day has gone by. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Day one, angels come to Sodom. Day two, Lot escapes to Zoar. Day three, God rained sulfur and fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels expressly say, this judgment cannot begin until Lot gets to Zoar. We can't start until you get there, right? But then we read about what happens to Lot's wife in verse 26. She looks back like they were warned not to do. And she immediately died. Her flesh was burned up like ash and salt, sulfur mixture. But they were in Zoar. What happened? They couldn't start until they got to Zoar. Lot paid for his sorry decision to go to Sodom. And now Lot was paying for his sorry decision to go to Zoar. A little land far too close to Sodom. Maybe if they had gone to the hill country, as the angel said, maybe there would have been no opportunity for his wife to even wander close enough to look on God's wrath. (coughs) Excuse me. Lot did not protect his wife. And Lot's wife loved Sodom too dearly. But then we have this contrast in verse 27 with another looker. Abraham is looking on this, right? He goes to the same place where he talked with the Lord about these things. He saw the smoke. He smelled the burning that was going on. He went to the place where he pleaded with the Lord. And he saw the city going up in smoke like a furnace watchful in his prayer that God would save the city. What happened? God did not save the city. And I'm sure there must have felt some mixture of sorrow and confusion. His prayer was for mercy. And it seems like there's only judgment. But let me tell you something about God. Many Christians have trouble understanding the attributes of God because we just want to pick one and say God's that. That's the true God. God is love. God is merciful. God is patient. But God is also wrath. God is holy. God is just. God is not a composite being like you put all these ingredients together and you make a God with all these things. And this is also why we can't say love is God. We can say God is love. God is patient, God is kind, God is abounding in steadfast love. We can't say love is God, right? 
Because God is all of these things inseparably intertwined and knit together in His being. They aren't separated. Right? This is who the Lord is. And we need to be reminded of that when we see Sodom destroyed and when we see Christ on the cross. This is where the wrath of God and the mercy of God come together in beautiful display. Whether Abraham was able to see it or not, he smelled the fire, the sulfur, destroying men that he had prayed for. God was merciful in that moment. He was merciful to the earth to relieve others of being raped by wicked men. He was merciful to Lot by forcibly removing him when he would not leave. He was merciful to Abraham for by a righteousness given to him through faith he was actually able to look on the wrath of God and not die like Lot's wife. Isn't that amazing to think about? Only because of a righteousness given through faith was he able to look on these things and live. On the cross of crucifixion and torment and wrongful murder that God ordained, the Lord was merciful. He was merciful to give His one and only Son that whoever should believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. He was merciful to pay the penalty for our sins that we too might be able to stand before a holy God and not become a pillar of salt. He was merciful to give us a resurrection from the dead that Jesus actually won for Himself but then decided to give to us. God is God. We should be careful to question His character based on His judgments. Who are you, O man, to judge the things of God? No man was ever sentenced to eternity in hell wrongly. No man was ever sent to death on the earth too early. No man was ever given eternal life through Jesus Christ that God didn't sovereignly draw to Himself and make them born again. God's decrees are right and righteous. Do not doubt the judgments of God. All this requires us to be sober-minded, to think seriously about our decisions and how we view the Lord. And it also calls us to action because this passage ends so sad. And I feel like I have to be so somber this morning as I preach it. What happens next shows us that not even fire and sulfur from heaven can actually destroy Sodom. Do not think that Sodom is dead. Do not think that Sodom is dead. Just when we thought the hard parts were over. Lot is now a widower. And Zoar, afraid for his life, living in a cave. Like the men in Revelation talk about when the Lord's coming and they hide themselves. Burning smoke all around them. They came to the conclusion they're the last people on the earth. God's done it again. He wiped out everything. They really think in their ignorance that they have to devise a scheme to repopulate the planet. And so they make their father drunk. And they sleep with him. And they receive sons. Moses doesn't give us any commentary here saying this is bad. But it's bad. It's bad. This is not a good thing. Sodom 
was resurrected from the dead immediately. John Coates has a commentary on Genesis. He, he writes this. I think it sums it up well. The impact of this unit focuses more directly on the characterization of the father, the one who offered his daughters for the sexual gratification of his wicked neighbors now becomes the object of his daughter's incestuous relationship. If the first half of this story represents Lot as a buffoon, a passive object whose retardation in the moment or in the movement of the story appears somewhat comic, then the same buffoonery certainly returns here. Lot not only reverses the direction of his fear, but in the hills loses his sensibilities to the wiles of his daughters. To be seduced by one's own daughters into an incestuous relationship with pregnancy following is bad enough. Not to know that the seduction had even occurred is even worse. To fall prey to the whole plot a second time is worse than ever. From this sin, Sodom would stay alive and the buffoonery of Lot would live through the Moabites and the Ammonites. That's how this passage ends. The first child they named Moab means father. Second child they named Ben-Ami. It means kinsman. It's almost like they think this is funny. One commentator states they could have used these ambiguous names to be playful with their children and be diplomatic with their father and be innocent before strangers. But Israel would know the true story. For they would be at war with the Moabites and the Ammonites for generations to come. This wicked people. The literal sons of Sodom. I'll end with this thought this morning. Be aware of the subtle persuasion of the world on your soul. Many theologians have said, you want to change the culture? Too late. Culture has already changed you. We're swimming in it. And we don't even know it. Sodom was not Lot's hometown, but in a short time he became a Sodomite. Social media. Television. News articles and books. Being shaped by these things is the definition of being worldly. And quite frankly, worldliness has always been the biggest danger from within the church. From the days of Sodom to now. And I think worldliness will be one of the biggest obstacles for us to have a successfully replanted church in Spindale, North Carolina that's making disciples for the glory of God. That means your being influenced by the world is like a dagger to Jesus' church. It matters how influenced you are by this world. Do not be of the world. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Perhaps the best summary of this passage I can't give because it's already been written in 2 Peter chapter 2. The Apostle Peter said, If 
if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment? If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of the righteous of, of, of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly? If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction by making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly? And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. To any sodomites here this morning, come to Christ and live. Any among you who have fallen prey to the flesh and the sexual cravings of our bodies, be freed by what Christ has already purchased, which is redemption. You can be cleaned and washed. Anybody listening to this message at home, repent. Tell someone immediately. Confess your sins. He will save you. He will save you. To the godly among us undergoing trials of the world, know that God will rescue us very soon. Even if He has to forcibly remove us when we linger. But in the meantime... May none of us be caught lingering, but let us run the race that is set before us for the upward prize of the call of Jesus Christ, whom we will see and will be made like him. Let us run with sober-mindedness, with the gospel on our minds and on our lips. Warning, Sodom still today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com. Or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.